For me, fashion is a verb. So it's to fashion. My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's sustainability editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis. I just think it's curiosity at the core of it. Like, I just really want to know the answer to things. You talk about revolution in 68. No, we make the revolution before. Can we just go back to making really beautiful clothes with a soul and minimize the waste and think a little before we we make things and bring back the value? Provided you wake up every morning and you're aware of the fact that your wardrobe is in the fashion supply chain, then you're a fashion decision maker. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. I want to ask you to close your eyes. It's always good to close your eyes to imagine stuff. Okay, I want you to think of an ethical fashion influencer. Here's a hint. She's an Italian with a huge passion to see fashion do better. What else? She's a green carpet queen. Who are you picturing? Oh, it's so obvious. No prizes. It's Livia Firth. And I am thrilled that she is our first guest for Series 3. We recorded this at EcoAge in London just before Christmas, and it's a terrific conversation that covers so many topics from glamour and royalty and fashion influencers right back to garment workers and their fair treatment. Livia is warm and knowledgeable and very generous with information and with her time because she is actually a really big deal. As I say to her, I can't think of anyone who's done more to make sustainable fashion glamorous, except perhaps for Emma Watson. But you know what? Livia had a hand in that too. You're going to hear about how she works with people who've got platforms and can reach different audiences to try to raise awareness about ethical and sustainable fashion. You're going to hear how it all started, what drives Livia, what makes her hopping mad, (laughs) what sort of kid she was, what inspires her, and also what it was like for her to see firsthand women working in terrible conditions in a Bangladeshi garment factory. If you don't know Livia... (laughs) Where have you been? She is the creative director of sustainability consultancy EcoAge, and she's the founder of the Green Carpet Challenge. We talk quite a bit about how that began, and she tells the story of how when her husband, Mr. Darcy, (laughs) sorry, Colin Firth, oh, please forgive me, I couldn't resist, was up for Best Actor Oscar for his role in the Tom Ford movie, A Single Man. He actually won, but not that year, the next year for The King's Speech. Livia is also involved in the film world. She co-produced a little ethical doco you might have heard of. It's called The True Cost. Do you know that one? Big on Netflix. Livia is also a UN leader for change. She was a founding member of Annie Lennox's women's advocacy group, The Circle, and we mentioned that in this interview. Livia is also the person who came up with the 30 wares hashtag. You've probably heard about that. You've probably done it. This is how she put it in an op-ed for a British newspaper. She wrote, the biggest message is every time you buy something, always think, will I wear it a minimum of 30 times? If the answer is yes, then buy it. But you'd be surprised by how many times you say no. You, however, are undoubtedly going to say yes to this episode. Talking to Livia is an absolute treat. If you're at home, make yourself a cup of tea. I'm so glad you could join us. But before we start, I have something rather important to do, and that is to thank my citizen producers. 
You absolute beauties. You gave me the best Christmas present of all time. It's down to you that Series 3 is here and I couldn't be more grateful. I'll be sharing some of your names and stories as we go on with the series. But this time, I'm shouting out to these bloody legends who donated early on and helped get the campaign off the ground. So enormous heartfelt thanks to Hazel Dooney, Brianna Gall, Erin Rhodes. Actually, by the way, Erin is a friend of mine. She appears in Rise and Resist and she also has a brilliant book out of her own. It's about zero waste and it's called Waste Not, so check it out. And also, big thanks to citizen producers Darcy Rizzo, Rosalie Ferris, Amy Warman and Claire O'Loughlin. And now, let's hear from Livia. We have liftoff. Yes! <laughs> Thank you so much for seeing me at your home of EcoAge in London. Well, it's so nice to welcome you here. It's beautiful. All the way from Australia. All Thank the way you from for Australia. Coming. Yes. <laughs> Pleasure. Um, oh, I want to start by just saying how grateful I am to you for your endorsement of my book, Rise and Resist. And I wanted to ask you, what do those words mean to you? Well, they're very close to my heart because I always reason and resisted, if you say that in the past tense in English. But it's so important, particularly in, a, in an environment like the one we're living today, politically and geopolitically and everything that is happening, it's so easy to get overwhelmed and as a result to create passive behavior. So rising is very, very important and resisting should be the mantra for everyone's life in everyone's. We should always resist. Love it. Um, I wanted to ask you also about the phrase activist. Uh, I quite love the idea of being a fashion activist. Do you I, relate to that? Yeah, I've always been an activist. Um, some people tell me I'm a ball breaker more than an activist. <laughs> <laughs> but I never, ever took anything for granted. And I never, you know, some, sometimes I read news and, and I think this is so, you know, not appropriate or so wrong. And then I either tweet about it or Instagram it or call someone to do something about it. I think we should all be like that because one of the problems today is that they almost brainwashed us to be passive. And it, it relates back to your Rise and Resist title of your book and giving so many examples of people that have done that. And it's so important to question things, to, to join the dots in things that are happening to us and not to think that everything is disjointed, you know, from the rest. I love how you use that phrase, citizens. Yes, because today they're calling us consumers, but I hate that word. And I think we're all citizens and we, we shouldn't be defined by purely the act of shopping or buying. I know, it's actually a creepy word, isn't it? And the other thing about consuming is the idea is that you eat it all up and it's gone, which is crazy. I know. One of the reasons why we have a fast fashion problem. Yeah, fast fashion, fast food, fast everything. Okay, we are recording this, as I said, in the EcoAge HQ in London. What exactly is EcoEdge and what do you do here? Well, that's an interesting question. We have been struggling to define ourselves for so long because we do so many different things and we occupy a very unique place in the market. We are historically a consultancy company that is specialized in sustainability and we are the only one that combine the technical expertise with the CSR and, and technical work on supply chains or built environment or reports, anything you, you name it, with the marketing and communication and PR and event activations. So we combined the strategies that we do for our clients at 360 degrees of, you know, you can't separate the technical expertise from the PR and communication. But it's also a lot of rich information that consume. We're not being consumers. Consumers that, that active citizens yes. can digest. <laughs> 
Yes, it is. And, you know, there are so many PR companies today that are trying to promote sustainable activations for their clients. And they're trying to occupy the, the space of how do you communicate sustainability in a digestible way. But what makes us special is that because we also do the work on the ground, the, what some people might call the boring work. <laughs> By the time we're ever communicating and PR in that work. work? <laughs> no, it's not boring. But boring. what is that? Like the supply chain yeah, thing? And the, yeah, I mean, I found it fascinating, but some people are like, oh my God, it's so boring. <laughs> well, I was always told never use those words, you know, ethical supply chain. Even sustainable used to be a word that was yeah. off-putting to people because it feels clunky and not human. You know, I tell you a story that not m- many people know. A few years ago... We were all struggling with the word sustainability and green and ego. We're like, oh my God, these words don't mean anything anymore. It must have been like six years ago. And so I emailed Noam Chomsky, who is the biggest linguistic in the world. And I worked with him previously on a documentary that I produced in who my previous career. Like, I know. So I just well, you say Noam that, Chomsky. but you know that he replies to every single email he receives from everyone. Wow. Well. It's amazing. So I emailed him and said, Noam, we need to get a new word. I'm coming to Boston to see you. So he gave me an appointment. I flew to Boston to see him. And after two hours with him where we discussed all the frustration around the word and the language and what he meant, what he didn't, he looked at me and said, you know what, Livia, you might as well stick with the word you have because you make up a new word. We invent a new word and the propaganda will appropriate it and empty it of its meaning very quickly. So you might as well stick with the words we have and put the meaning back in them. And I was like... Okay, thank you. I only flew to Boston for this, but that's fine. But I will you, do that. And we did. But then you, to have a tick so, from Noam Chomsky is kind of a radical thing. It is. Come on. It is. It should have been in your book, Rise and Resist. <laughs> Talking of a tick, nice segue, huh? I want to talk about Brandmark. So yes. this is a relatively new endeavor for you. Yeah. What does it mean? Why do we need it? How do you award it? The biggest question, the most frequent question that everyone asks us at Equage is, well, what should I do? Or what should I buy? Oh my God, same. And I get very, that every day. Yeah, you get that every day. And it's very, it goes back to being quite passive because, in fact, it's not as much as what to buy, but more a question of how frequently to buy and how, fre- and how long you keep the things you buy for. But in order to communicate the products and the brands that are doing things in a good way. It's so confusing because, you know, an expert agency like us, someone like you occupies this space, we know much more than the normal person. And no one walks in the street with the, you know, with the Bible of what is eco, what is not, what all the certification they mean, etc. So what we thought is because people trust us and trust our work, to launch a brand mark, so the Ecoage brand mark, it's like a recognition of approval to brands. And it's given precisely on that, on recognizing something that the brand is doing well. Because the other thing that we absolutely don't believe in, because it doesn't exist, is perfection. And I think if you seek perfection, you'll never conquer anything. So it's more about how do you recognize brands and companies that are doing things properly. Sometimes it takes a long time, so you might do incredible work with your um, workshop you have maybe craftsmanship you know fantastic labor standards but then you go and look at the environmental footprint and it's it's not perfect yet so what do you do you say no you're bad no you say okay great you are doing fantastic work on social issues now let's look at the environmental but we want to recognize the work that you're doing on social and vice versa so we are going to award that and we launched it 
now and the brands that we started to award it are for all sorts of different reasons and you can see it on our website you know so for different elements of sustainability you would get a different mark a different no you get rating. the same but it says what it is for so it would be the eco age brand mark in recognition of and then that description of why you are being recognized by the eco age brand mark can you give and us some examples always social of, of and what, uh, environment, environmental we tend never to separate the two because you know the social for us i mean most people talk about the environmental impact but the social impact is as important if not more important than the environmental impact sometimes and so we we selected the brands uh, according to that and then because we don't want to exclude anyone some brand the very very small brands we are awarding them you know just for a year just to say well done you know this is an incredible work that you but it's do. quite a rigorous process to be it's able very to, rigorous yeah. i mean we have our internal ju- police there <laughs> internal is a very <laughs> yes there is a very long questionnaire that each company has to answer to but also our consultants that are on the phone ask lots of difficult questions and it's been various cases in which we decided not to award it because it, you know we could smell a rat somewhere <laughs> right <laughs> yes Okay, we talked about the kind of serious underpinnings of sustainability, so the sourcing and the supply chains and the certification. But I want to talk about glamour. Yes, <laughs> of course. I was at Green Carpet Awards this year. Yes, did you enjoy? It was amazing. Yeah. It's really an amazing thing, actually, because it sparkles, doesn't it? I yeah. mean, it's very, very glamorous and it feels very, very yeah. fashion with a capital F. Tell yeah. us the story behind it. The story behind it is that Carlo Capasa, the president of Camera Nazionale della Moda in Italia, CNMI, came to me uh, like three years ago and said, you know, Olivia, we need to do something. We have He's very, very passionate about sustainability. Camera della Moda has done quite a lot of work on it, launched a sustainability roundtable, which over the years has achieved a lot. It's been it launched the criteria for the toxicology standard on textile for the built shops. So they've done a lot of work and he wanted to do something glamorous. And he said, you know, all the brands either produce in Italy or source from Italy because of the, you know, all the meals, the famous Italian meals. And so we should celebrate that. Will you, you know, come up with an idea with EcoAge, a concept for the Fashion Awards? And so we worked on the concept and we came up with the Green Carpet Fashion Awards and the idea of celebrating the handprint of fashion so the people in the supply chain. So it's the first award, you, fashion award you will ever go to where there are no awards for designers, but only awards for seamstresses and cobblers. Well, you and, do. You have an um, emerging designer. We have emerging designers to recognize the work that they've been doing in sustainability because they won a competition, the CNMI, a green carpet talent competition. But overall, we award the people in the supply chain. We had over, you know, the first year... And this year as well, and you were there, you saw the cobbler. I was just about to say, it's so nice. Tell us what that was. So we had the first year we awarded all the seamstresses of Valentino Atelier in Rome. So rather than having Pierpaolo on stage from Valentino receiving an award, it was the seamstresses that received the award from and Pierpaolo awarding them. This year we had all the cobblers from the Ferragamo. Yes, it was really nice, wasn't it? So the cobblers of Ferragamo. And then we had also the wool growers from, from Australia, from your, the country where you're based. Um, but with the cobblers or the seamstresses, I love that you're actually celebrating craftsmanship. I think the award's called the Art of Craftsmanship. Yeah, the Art of Craftsmanship. Quite lovely. Yeah. 
Yes, it is. And because, you know, there are so many different aspects to the sustainability conversation and you have to showcase them all to make people understand how many of them there are and differently because otherwise it's always about eco-fashion, meaning hemp, meaning not glamorous, meaning boring, you know. So it's, it's to showcase instead. It, it's not. It's about a celebration of all the aspects and it is over glamorous and you have celebrities and, you know, everyone endorsing it. You've probably done more than I can think anyone has actually done to make this subject glamorous and gorgeous. <laughs> I mean, you have. You go there and you got Donatella and I looked up the dress. We'll share some details and some links. But Donatella Versace won an award for... She won the uh, Camera della Moda in recognition for sustainability. So Donatella Versace, for the first time, started a journey into sustainability, started to change some things within the company. And it's a very courageous act, you know, because a lot of these big brands feel very, not only overwhelmed, but scared to even start. And they don't know where to start from. And when they start, they never tell anyone because they don't want to be accused of, you know, just greenwashing. So she, in through Donatella style, not only started it, but she was courageous and said, okay, I'm going to do this, this and that. And she created a roadmap. So Camera de la Moda and us wanted to, you know, recognize this effort and this, you know, boldness in starting a journey with the brand. It's quite complicated. And so she was wearing, I believe hers was a very, very bright yellow and yeah, then was Cindy Crawford in turquoise but yeah the dyes yeah so we work with every single fashion designer that did the, the red carpet that night the green carpet we all work with them to apply our GCC standard the green carpet challenge standards in principle so we work with every single brand to create these looks and you know in all the different components somewhere you know special certified silks dyed in a, in a certain way others you know were upcycled sequins or Econil and you know special leather. It was very. It's fascinating. Or vintage. Or vintage. I'm pointing at you. I did because I was. You know, for me, it's always a problem what to wear at the Green Carpet Fashion Awards because I can't wear one of the designer because it's always like, how do I prefer one rather than the other? What do I do? So this year, I decided to. Because I, I know Lavinia Biagiotti well and I so admire her. I love the fact that it's a three women generation business and strong women. And I was talking to her and I said, and she mentioned something about having this huge archive. And I was like, what? Really? Can I come and see it? So in the summer, I went to see it. And there were like rooms and rooms and rooms full of clothes since the beginning of the business. And I thought, oh my God, this is extraordinary. And then I found this incredibly simple dress from the 1980s collection. I thought, okay, this is what gonna, I'm going to wear. <laughs> but actually, this entire endeavor, or the name of it at least, is rooted in your own experience of trying to green your own red carpet outings. Tell us a story about the first green carpet challenge. Yes, it was uh, 2009 and Colin got the nomination at the Golden Globe for a single man in Which, December. by the way, is the best film I've ever seen still. It's extraordinary. I'm so happy you agree with that because it's my favorite movie of all time. So Colin receives the nomination in December. And I'm like, oh, my God. And then Lucy Siegel, the journalist, says, oh, well, you have, at the time we had a, the equage was a shop as well. It was and a shop here in Chiswick. In Chiswick, yeah. And she said, oh, you eco girl, will you manage to do all the awards wearing only eco fashion? And I replied, I said, well, listen, 
I'm not going to wear a, a potato sack on my head, but, you know, I can try only if you help me and join me. And then we went to Dolly John's. Sorry, may I just catch yeah. you there? Could you just really quickly tell us what you sold in EcoEdge when it was a shop? It was a shop for the home and it had a consultancy service for homeowners. And we created the first library in the world of eco-materials for the home. And but you it was couldn't have worn that as a frock? No, I couldn't. I could have, like, a kitchen countertop <laughs> <laughs> on me. So, so, Lucy, so you went to Dolly? So Lucy challenged me. I replied like that. Then we went to Dolly Jones, who at the time was the editor of Vogue.co.uk. And we said to Dolly, will you give us a, a space if we write a blog about this adventure? And we call it the Green Carpet Challenge because it is a challenge. We don't know if we're going to make it or not. And Dolly loved it. And so we started. And at the beginning, the first year uh, was each carpet at each ceremony showcasing one issue. So we did an upcycle wedding dress uh, for the Golden Globe. We did... Um, you know, a dress for the Oscars that from uh, Ursula de Castro at the time had a label called From Somewhere, uh, did with the recycling materials. And she found a lot of petticoats and bras in a bin. And she created this dress for me, and which was amazing. I wore it to the Oscars. Uh, so you we wore rubbish to I wore, the Oscars. Yes, I, wore, I did. I, I literally did. <laughs> but it looked fantastic. It looked fantastic. And, you know, we, we worked with a designer on milk fiber and then with, you know, Prophetic with Jeff. He di- hand dyed. I don't know with Indigo. Do you know Jeff Garner, Prophetic? Jeff is like a pioneer of eco-fashion in America. And he, oh, actually, I do expert. know this dress. I, I saw it. Yes, and he, he hand dyed it with uh, indigo and indigo plants that he, he grows in his farm. You know, it was a beautiful story. So we did all of that. The blog, in the meantime, started to, uh, to get a lot of traction. Then fast forward the second year, 2011, calling us the nomination for uh, King's Speech. So here we are again on, on all the, the carpets and the circuit. And I thought, you know what? Was there a bit I'm... of you that just wanted to go buy some Prada? <laughs> no, never. <laughs> Never, because I, w- I started to have so much fun. And also it gave me a purpose to be there and to do them all. And I thought, and once, you know, I've been campaigning about human rights for a long time. And then you are on the red carpet, you wear a dress and everyone pays attention. And you think, okay, you want fashion to campaign? I'll give you fashion. But we're still talking about the same shit. You know, it's all about human rights and labor rights and, you know, environmental rights. So once I understood the power of fashion, it started to get addictive and... But the second year, I was like, okay, I've done it. I know I can do it. And I know it can be that glamorously. What about all the big designers and what about all the uh, celebrities? So I started lobbying them. And so the second year was much more about working with Armani, Valentino, you know, to enlarge it. And then all the celebrities and Meryl Streep famously that year wore a gold dress when she won the Oscar by Lan Van. Uh, so it grew and that, bigger how was and bigger. That sustainable? It was a Lamban work, Albert Bass work with a mill in France that was producing that particular textile in, a, in an eco way and it was God certified and it was a beautiful story. And so over the years, and then since then, I've never done a red carpet without wearing something that I, had, I could talk about. And we converted plenty of actors and actresses to do it too and join us in this quest and Last year, we even did an entire press tour for Emma Watson. Let's talk about that, because actually, yeah. you mentioned 
in your experience, you you looked at your platform and thought, I want to use this to put a message forward that is meaningful. But mm. actually, well, I was going to say no one does. That's not true. There's history of, for example, the Oscars being used as a platform to talk about issues. I'm thinking about... Me Too this year. Oh, Me Too at the Globes. Perfect yeah. example. But that that is precisely that. It's like when you see that all the actresses decided only to wear black and you think, okay, they're using fashion for a political statement. So let's take it forward let's do it all the time you know fashion is political what emma watson did was absolutely blowing it out of the park i mean it got so many eyeballs on the message of sustainable fashion yeah she's she's amazing because you know it wasn't easy and she was very courageous and very determined and she wanted she believed in that and she said i want to use the power of my press store and the fact that i'm gonna be now photographed and you know being on this global stage to promote Beauty and the Beast. And really talk about the clothes. And really talk about the clothes and in a good way and promote good ethical and sustainable practices. So we work with her and her stylist and we, for over a year, and, you know, and it was very successful. The press store, the dedicated Instagram account got so much attention. And Emma became a hero of all of us, you know, who have been working on this scene to promote sustainable fashion. So good. Also, let's just touch on the Met Gala 2016 because there were some extraordinary examples of great green carpet looks there. Yes, that was the idea that Emma did it with the Calvin Klein. Um, and I think that was gave us also, because Emma's always been interested in it, but I think the power of doing that red carpet then gave us the, you know, the courage to do a dedicated press tour. And everyone looked at it. I mean, that particular, it's actually not even a dress. It's a corset and a separate skirt that can be actually adaptable. Yeah, and with made different... Etc. But it was front and centre of the Fashion from Nature exhibition at the V&A. So yes. it becomes a museum piece. Yes, exactly. Because exactly. it's a cultural moment. Yeah, exactly. Who else was at the um, the Met? Well, the, the Met that year, I, Emma did it two years in a row. The first year was with the Calvin Klein dre- white dress. It was beautiful. And then Lupita and Margot Robbie joined her. And it was the three of them. And then the second year, she did it again with this, you know, constructed piece with the trousers and the gown and the top that you can separate. And that then was at the Fashion and Nature exhibition at the V&A. When we see these big, big names transforming the way that we look at the glamour of sustainable fashion, it really changes culture, it changes conversations, it reaches people who have not normally been wading into this conversation. Yeah, I mean... what do we need to step it up? Well, we need uh, Kim Kardashian, really, to start doing it. (laughs) It's like, I always said, this is my next mission, is to convince all of the social media influencers that with, you know, this gigantic following to use their power for meaningful reasons and campaigns. And, you know, imagine truly if Kim Kardashian started to, or Selena Gomez, they started to talk about, you know, sustainability and and environmental justice and social justice. I mean, my God, they would convert everyone. We could close EcoAge and, you know, I could retire and do something else. (laughs) We don't want you to retire, but we do actually want Kylie Jenner to step into this Yeah, definitely, 100%. If we got Kylie Jenner to engage in the space, that would be fantastic. But what are the other routes, do you think, towards reaching really younger, a younger generation, Gen Z? Well, or are they already there? I think the younger generation, from what I can see and we can see with the equation, are much more switched on. And I think 
we don't have to teach them anything in that space. Um, it's still very complicated for them because obviously they grew up with the availability of everything. So they grew up knowing they can walk to H&M or Zara or Primark or, you know, Miss 60 or whatever they are, all this brand Forever 21 and buy things for a Saturday night party. But they're starting to understand the repercussion. They're starting to understand that, you know, it's not only about wearing constantly something new. It's very interesting because it's almost like for them, the movement starts to be united in a way that it should with sexual justice, women empowerment, um, what they wear. Because it's all about, you know, women identity or, or men identity. And it's not disjointed. It's not about... When you look at Instagram today, you know, every single girl poses in a certain way, very sexualized way. You then read statistics and report that 70% of, of girls, teenagers on Instagram feel ashamed to wear the mm. same thing twice. I've never um, heard that stat. Yuck, really. Yeah, it's really awful. I mean, oh, and you think it's all connected, right? It's all, it's all about going to their insecurity as women as young girls, you know, thinking that over-sexualizing and wearing cl- different clothes all the time is, is their identity. And also so this is changing. Trying to, oh, you think? I think it's changing and it's changing for the good. And so we need, but definitely social media plays such a gigantic role in it. And we have to start using it for, you know, social for good. good. Yeah. All right, I want to rewind to when you were a kid. So where does this come from in you? I have no idea because... <laughs> I grew up, you know, I'm, I'll be 50 next year. So I grew up in a very, very different era. Today has changed. Everything has changed so much. I grew up not only without computers and phones, but without anything, like really. I mean, we used to go to school, come home, do our homework, go out with our friends maybe, but it was never about what we were wearing. or and Particularly in Italy, which was very yeah. traditional. It wasn't like, you know, the 60s of the 70s in London scene. You know, the 60s and 70s in Rome were very, very different. But we weren't, same as when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, I was very motivated by fashion. But as a kid, you weren't, you know, young. When you're 13, 14, didn't mean anything. I mean, I really, truly never thought about fashion, never in my life. But also you and I Um, talked about valuing clothes, that if you had a good sweater, then you'd look But that's the thing. Also, we used to consume in a very different way. So we used to, you know, you used to save money, buy things of quality. There wasn't really a prime. I can't remember having the equivalent of a primer back then. We didn't. There wasn't. There wasn't. You didn't have the opportunity to buy things cheaply. So you had to save to buy. And once you saved to buy, it was an investment. You, you kept it forever. You looked after it. So it comes from a very different attitude to consuming, but also about now knowing so much about it and traveling to Bangladesh, meeting the people on the ground and the women in the factories, that changes everything. And you can't, once you experience that, you can't pretend you haven't and forget about it. I know? want to ask you about that, but just keeping with little Livia, did you have a kind of big sense of justice or, I don't know, like a, did you want to change the world when you were a kid? I didn't want to change the world, no. But I was always very curious and very, very... Um, I was a bull breaker. <laughs> <laughs> Once I was always like, why are you doing that? And, uh, very, you know. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I didn't want to change the world. What did your parents do? My mom was at home. She was a housewife. She raised four kids. And my dad was the managing director of an engineering company. So it was very normal family with not much money at all in fact we didn't buy many clothes or anything because they were constantly broke 
I met your brother actually the other day. Nicola. Yeah, he said, yeah. I'm the one. I said, I haven't met you before. And he said, I'm the one we don't interview. Yes. And then he's left. The, <laughs> <laughs> he's the CEO of EcoAge. We founded the company together. And now it's based in Milan because we opened EcoAge Italia, a base there, a, a company there. So it's, it does back and forth with London and Milan. But doesn't he have like a degree in sustainability or he something? Has a degree, he has a doctorate in, in economy, economic science. How would you call it in English? I don't know. And his uh, doctorate was about how you convert to an economy based on sustainability, yeah. sustainable economy. But when, so, okay, I'm interested in your pathway. So I know that you became a documentary filmmaker, but how did you get to that point where you wanted to have eco-age and you became eco-woman? I didn't. It, what, <laughs> what happened was I was making documentaries. At the time, I was producing a documentary with my brother, who was the camera. We went to America and filmed. There was a documentary called In Prison My Whole Life about... At the Black Panther and African-American politics and death row inmates in America. And the documentary was selected to go to Sundance. So we, I was in Sundance, it was early 2007, and my brother had the idea to create EcoAge. And so at the beginning, I got involved more as an older sister, because there are 12 years between the two of us, and a producer, I said, okay, I'll help you up with this. And then before I knew it, I got completely stuck into it and involved into it. And this is what became my journey. And until I then found myself again producing with The True Cost with Andrew Morgan. I haven't done documentary since. Okay, you mentioned before Bangladesh. In 2008, in a role as an Oxfam ambassador, ambassador, you were taken to Bangladesh, but not to look at fashion. No, I went to Bangladesh. We just, um, Annie Lennox just came up with the idea of creating the Circle NGO, which at the time was within Oxfam. And our first trip for the Circle and Oxfam was to Bangladesh. And I went with Lucy Siegel and it was to look at a campaign on the ground against domestic violence. But, and, but as a, we were in Dhaka, we asked the Oxfam person if she could smuggle us into a factory. And, and that is the moment that changed everything. Because obviously, you know, we arrived outside that factory and it was a terrible building, like, you know, they all are in Dhaka. And, and he had an armed guard at the door. And I was like, why is there a soldier in a factory? And it was the first thing that really struck me. And then, you know, there's only one exit and one entrance, so one door. So no one can get in and out without their armed guard noticing it. And then there were floors and floors crammed, mostly with women. And all the windows had metal bars, so no fire escape. And, you know, there was no fire exit. They were all working in this production line, producing at the time when the minimum wage was $64 a month. They were producing 100, 150 pieces an hour. Today, that since Rana Plaza got raised and then never changed again to something like $94 or $84. I can't remember, so not, still nothing. They produce 150, 200 pieces an hour. So it's, it's like a fake thing because they paid the slightly more, but they had to raise mm. the number at the production line. But, you know, they were old. They had no toilet breaks. You know, if you have a child and your child is sick, you can't leave work. I mean, it was it's real slave labor. So when we came home, I was like... I can't pretend I didn't meet them and I didn't see it. And that's the, still today the biggest thing that I can't understand is, you know, I went back to Dhaka in 2015 again with Harriet, our head of communication at EcoAge, and we met 
there were there so many buyers from different brands that I won't name. And you think, my God, you live here. You are based here. You work with these people every day. You know. How? You know. How can you do it? How can you allow them to produce in this shitty condition earning nothing? And how can you justify the fact that your business is based on slave labor? And it's shocking. It's the one thing that I still can't, you know. Mm. The true cost is the film that really changed people's minds. It's the thing that I hear most often quoted to me when I talk about sustainability. People say, oh, yes, I watched The True Cost. I know about that because I watched The True Cost. It was very powerful. Yeah, Andrew Morgan did an amazing job. He's such a talented director, such a clever man too. And, you know, he approached the whole thing from, a, again, from someone who never thought about fashion and never knew anything about it. And, I let you know, he tells the story that the idea came from the first page of the New York Times had the picture of the Rana Plaza collapse the day that it happened. And it, it was like, what? You know, it's like, what, what? In the These people died in the name of fashion? And this is how the documentary started. And we were laughing the other day with Andrew because recently there were, I think The Economist or Bloomberg, I can't remember who reported that the profit of um, H&M were, were going down. And there was this chart through the years of the H&M <laughs> profit thing and it showed them going down from 2014 and Andrew Samiatek said you know that's the year that we pr- we launched the true cost <laughs> it's like can we claim that we have been responsible say like, yes <laughs> actually when you mentioned that it made me think of another very impactful piece of journalism that actually ran in the New York Times which was about made in Italy and yes. then revealing in some instances that people were not being paid a living wage I always think of Made in Italy as being the high point of kind of integrity and craftsmanship and beauty. What's yeah. your take on that? Well, I have a lot to say on that. Mm. Um, first of all, supply chains are very complicated and there is slave labor happening everywhere. I mean, the New York Times pointed the finger at Puglia, a, a region of Italy which is notoriously very difficult. But you know, these were home workers. To, these were home workers yeah. who had been outsourced to by the factory owners. Yeah. But without mentioning there are plenty of slave labor in New York City alone, in the fashion district. Slave labor is everywhere. Brands have to be very, very alert, and it's complicated. What I would say about Italy, and one of the reasons why we wanted to base the the green carpet fashion was in Italy, is that the supply chain in the Italian territory is slightly more regulated than in other countries and also the fact that the unions in Italy are so strong so there are a lot of um, protection and a lot of work that Camera della Moda and some of the Italian brands are doing incredibly well but obviously it's never enough and obviously it's a long path because as the New York Times article proved you know a brand can have a fantastic relationship with the factory in the south of Italy and pay them a lot of money for each garment and then the factory owner behind the back sneaks a couple mm. of pieces to the home workers mm. and this is like these are problems that we need to work on and make sure that they don't happen again what it brings home is the complexity of this it's really easy to point fingers it's really easy to say for example 
the fashion industry is terrible. I mean, I hear that all the time. Yeah. People but, often saying it's the second most polluting industry on the planet, yeah. which isn't even true. Yeah. But, or isn't verifiable. But what it shows is that this is such a complicated conversation and that anyone working in a space realises, as you said before, that I'm not making excuses, but just that perfection's not possible. No. And we have to have, that's why we're so obsessed with transparency. We yeah. have to have an environment where we can look and then talk. Yeah. And try and but, shift. The, absolutely, but and at the same time, as you say, complexity cannot be the excuse because, unfortunately, it's a very dangerous argument because you say we all believe that supply chains are very complex, but in a way, some things are also very simple. And so, you there are a lot of brands that hide behind the complexities to say, "Oh, we try, we do, and blah blah blah," but it's very complex. So next time they get caught, they have the excuse of the complexity. But at the same time, it is a real fact that they are very complex. And this is why also in the last three years, we have been working so hard with the circle and the lawyer circle to work with proper lawyers across the world, led by a task force in England, to do a study on the living wage and trying to understand whether the living wage as a universal human rights, as as professed by the International Labour Organization, for example, also is a legal argument or not. Mm. And the lawyers, after three years, um, and working, as I said, with other 14 countries and f- lawyers from these 14 countries, they actually established that it's a legal requirement. And so now they are working, uh, they brought it to the uh, European Parliament for discussion. They are working with certain brands to look at how to implement it, what are the hurdles. But that was a huge step, and that is one of the things that is absolutely needed and was our motion with the UK parliamentary inquiry that is happening now on sustainable fashion. The evidence that we submitted is all based on that, on the living wage, because until there is a legal requirement, nothing will ever change. What we always, what I always hear on that question from brands is, it's too complicated, we can't solve it alone. I always think, why not, just pay more? They can't solve it alone. <laughs> They well, they can choose can, what they pay. They can definitely solve it alone if they wanted to. But again, it's too easy to say, well, if the government doesn't implement. And this is why, for the first time, it was important to look at it from a legal lens. Because there are plenty of, like anti-competition law, there are plenty mm. of laws where now the CEO of a brand or the board, the shareholders are all criminally charged if something happened in their company, but not about wages and not about supply chain. Oh, God. So the Modern Day Slavery Act, which now Australia also has passed, which is incredible. Yeah but doesn't have any legal implication. So it's important as a first step, but Mm. we can't sit on that first step. We absolutely need to implement it legally to have some resonance and validity. Okay, um, we're running out of time, but I cannot let this end without talking about royalty. Come on. Oh, yeah, of course. We, all, we are in England. We have to talk about royalty. Yes, we're here in the home Particularly of in Italian. Prince Charles. <laughs> I just want to talk, um, I want to talk about the Commonwealth Fashion Exchange. But before we do that, I noticed that you had been at this waste summit recently. And I was super jealous, although it looked very cold. So perhaps I wasn't. Oh, my God, it was so cold. <laughs> it was so cold. It was the coldest winter day. And it was inside the Veolia recycling plant which was extraordinary but it was you know we even had blankets I saw it. it's just like we got the blankets oh my god yeah at that summit which is called waste to wealth prince charles said these words and i wrote them down i'm going to read them out we are the first generation to know that we are destroying the world and the last to know that we can do anything about it if we do not act our children and grandchildren will not be able to change it Yikes. It's very true. It was quoted in WWF, and it's very true. 
it is so true that we are the first generation to know. Today we know it all. It's not, we can't hide behind the excuse that we don't know. And the clock is ticking and we have to do something. If we don't, it's unforgivable. But really, the reason why I raised that was because I want to talk about Commonwealth Fashion Exchange, and that was my royal segue. Yes. <laughs> Tell us all about that, because it is fab. Well, that came from us talking to both Buckingham Palace and the Commonwealth Secretary. <laughs> you talked to Noam Chomsky and Buckingham Palace. I know. Can you believe it? Well, my life is like... It's, <laughs> I am very lucky. Um, or very crazy. I don't know. which Whichever point of... You know, you're looking at it from... I was talking to Baroness Patricia Scotland, the Secretary General of the Commonwealth, and she was telling us all this thing about, she was telling us in terms of me and Equal team, not us, because I don't give myself the royal we. Um, (laughs) (laughs) She was telling us about all this incredible wealth in the Commonwealth countries and the fact that 60% of the Commonwealth population is made of people under the age of 30. So there's a huge, huge component. And, you know, you started looking at all these facts and then they they knew that Chogam, the Commonwealth head of state meeting was happening in London in April 2018. And so they said, we need to use something to revitalize the Commonwealth, to engage this youth into the wealth, the Commonwealth that we all have. And I said to her, I was like, well, we have to use fashion. I was like, what, should, what do you mean? I was like, but there's only one way, and it is to use fashion. And so we devised, we decorated this Commonwealth fashion exchange, and we we involved all the 53 countries using 33 artisans from different countries and designers from others. And we paired them and like at the Olympic, basically. And so you had people like Stella in England having to work with the mill in India and, you know, designers in Tuvalu, which is the smallest country in the world, <laughs> working with someone in Bangladesh. So it was all like cross-reference. And also we'll share some links, but two designers who've been on this podcast, Kit Willow, or Kit from Kit X, and Karen Walker. Yes, two Australians and uh, New Zealand. Yeah. Yes. Um, so what did it look like? What did you do with the event? So what we do is we launched Buckingham Palace. It was a great exhibition with all these incredible gowns and they were really, really stunning. And we did it with three incredible partners, which were Swarovski, Walmart Company and MatchesFashion.com. And it could have never happened without them. And, and them mentoring and involving other groups like Swarovski involved Nest, which is the first NGO in the world that regulated the home workers um, market, matchesfashion.com, retail some of the designers, and then brought the exhibition to the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York. The Walmart company worked with a lot of the designers with wool and really mentored them. So it was incredible to have them, like to truly get involved in this project. And so after Buckingham Palace, Hamish, yeah, created, directed the Buckingham Palace event and it was very funny. I love working with Hamish and and then we started, we worked together also on the Green Carpet Fashion Awards in Milan because he has the most incredible talent, but also a fantastic personality. He's so kind and so open and so resourceful and, you know, it's a really special person. And so it was great. It was we were there thinking, oh my God, can you believe we are at Buckingham Palace and the Duchess of Cambridge is opening the exhibition? And, you know, it was extraordinary. The power of fashion. The power of fashion, indeed, yes. Now it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defending you. We tell them all that they are wrong because I love you. 
Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you. Because I love you. Because I love you.